This is Radio EcoShock. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words. Words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Of course, we need constructive dialogue, but they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? But, of course, we can still turn this around. It is entirely possible. It will take drastic annual emission cuts, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And as we don't have the technological solutions that alone can deliver anything close to that, that means we will have to change. We can no longer let the people in power decide what is politically possible or not. We can no longer let the people in power decide what hope is. Hope is not passive. Hope is not blah, blah, blah. Hope is telling the truth. Hope is taking action. And hope always comes from the people. That was Greta Thunberg speaking at the Milan Youth for Climate Conference in September 2021. It was recorded by the BBC. She used phrases mocking climate pronouncements by UK PM Boris Johnson. This week on Radio EcoShock, we investigate the imaginary weave of green words that cover up terrible changes in our climate, happening already. From Australia, author David Spratt joins our second half hour. But first, for the kids, we have a stunning new study reporting extreme climate events building and building during the lifetimes of children born this century. From UV Brussels, the lead author, Dr. Wim Thierry, reveals the painful numbers and who really pays the price of our continued inaction on greenhouse gases. Radio EcoShock. Welcome to the emergency. Dr. Wim Thierry is a research professor from View University of Brussels. He led 37 authors with a warning. Kids are severely threatened by climate change and in ways older people have never experienced. The paper was published in the journal Science on September 26, 2021. From Belgium, Wim Thierry, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi. With such a large group of experts from all over the world that you gather together, why is it urgent to rethink what climate change really means and who will experience it? Yes, so in this uh, research, we quantified the lifetime exposure to climate extremes for any person born in a particular year, in a particular country, and under a particular future warming scenario. So this research really allows us to quantify what climate change will mean in terms of the extreme events that a person will experience across their lifetime. And the results are quite sobering. We find that a person born in 2020 will experience twice as many wildfires, twice as many tropical cyclones, three times as many heat uh, crop failures, three times as many droughts, three times as many river floods, 
and seven times as many heat waves compared to a person born in 1960, so 60 years earlier. And this under a future warming scenario corresponding to the current climate pledges. We hear so many numbers and statistics, the mind almost goes numb. I want to pause for a second. You say heat waves, storms, and disasters from unstable weather will increase, as you say, anywhere from four to seven times what we experience today. So the next generation will have to try and survive and then recover over and over again. The increase in lifetime exposure to all these climate extremes ranges between factor two and seven, depending on the category of extreme events. And this under a scenario corresponding to the current climate pledges. If we go to higher warming levels, these multiplication factors in terms of lifetime exposure will be higher. And on the other hand, if we increase our climate ambition and limit global warming to one and a half degrees, we can reduce that lifetime exposure to climate extremes. So what our re- research really clearly shows is that the number of extreme events that a person, a child born today will have to deal with strongly depends on the degree of warming that we are going to end up with by the end of this century. Which means that young generations have most to lose if we go to high warming levels. But on the other hand, we can also reverse the message and say that young people have most to gain from increasing climate emission and limiting global warming one and a half degrees. The United Nations just said on our current path we are headed towards 2.7 degrees C of warming. That's a disaster, and they always underestimate. But as you say, if we could take climate action, we could almost rewrite a better future, or at least a less worse future, for our kids. So what our research is showing is that people that are today 40 years or younger will have an unprecedented life in terms of exposure to droughts, heat waves, crop failures, and river floods. That said, if we increase our ambition levels from the current pledges to and limit global warming to one and a half degrees, we can reduce the intergenerational burden for newborns substantially for each of these extreme event categories. And for instance, for heat in terms of heat wave exposure, we can reduce the intergenerational burden for newborns by 40% if we increase ambition and limit level one to one and a half degrees. It seems to me your group challenges the models and assumptions used by large institutions. They compare snapshots in time, like climate in the year 2040 versus the year 2000, for example, instead of what really happens in lives lived out over time. How would you express that? Yes, so this is, um, I'm I'm myself a climate scientist working since 10 years on on climate research and climate change research. And as we typically perform our research in our discipline is indeed comparing these two time windows. For instance, how by the end of the century, there will be X times more heat waves compared to a present day situation. This way of doing research does not allow us to quantify how much climate extremes a person will experience across their entire lifetime. Doing so in this research forced us to bridge between the discipline of climate science and the discipline of demography. We essentially combined state-of-the-art data sets from these two disciplines 
together. And by joining these databases, we were able to quantify this lifetime exposure. So while we use state-of-the-art knowledge from both disciplines, it's really the combination of these, the bridging between these two disciplines, climate science and demography, that allows us to gain these new insights regarding lifetime exposure to climate extremes. At VIEW, you are with the Department of Hydrology and Hydraulic Engineering. This new study includes river flooding and the growing catalog of disasters. I interviewed Dr. Anders Leverman about the underestimation of the real damage river floods cause, and we just had those deadly floods in Belgium and North Germany. Will the next generation see even more? So if we talk about uh, the river floods that um, hit Belgium and the Netherlands and Germany last summer, we see that more than 200 people were killed in the region. In Belgium, only 40 people died because of the river floods. Scientists have, in the meantime, proven that climate change has increased the probability of this particular event that hit Western Europe. They found that climate change increases the probability of this category of extreme precipitation, this type of extreme event, by a factor uh, 1.2 to 9. So there is a clear link between anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and the increased probability of extreme precipitation that led to this flooding. Now, in our study, we use a state of the art of global scale hydrological models that compute river discharge based on the output, the precipitation projections from the global climate model. And then we calculate the inundation area using yet another state-of-the-art model. So what we are doing in this study is we are using the state-of-the-art modeling tools as they are available in the scientific community today and as they are also, uh, and whose results are also directly feeding into the IPCC report. So we use the state of the art, and of course, there is room to further improve these models, but this is at the moment our best knowledge in terms of how climate change will influence river discharge and inundation, river floods uh, in the coming decades. On October 4th, a new record was set for the most rain in Europe in 12 hours, 741 millimeters, 29.2 inches of rain fell near Genoa, Italy in 12 hours. What do you make of that? So the increase in extreme precipitation is one of the most clear signs of a warming climate. We already know for many decades that warming the atmosphere leads to an increase in extreme precipitation. And that's because there is a very simple physical principle at play here. We speak of the clausius clapeyron relationship, which says essentially that a, warming, a warmer atmosphere contains more moisture. As the atmosphere warms, it can hold more water, which means that there can be longer periods without rain, but at the same time, when it rains, there is a larger amount of water available to potentially rain out. And we are seeing this both in our observations from all across the world, as well as in our computer models, that extreme precipitation is rising as the atmosphere warms. So from this perspective, the increase in extreme precipitation, as we have been observing in Italy, but also as we have been observing in um, Belgium and Germany last summer 
are a clear sign of climate change, and this will continue towards the future as the climate continues to warm. Your university group also looked at the cooling impact of irrigation on temperatures on the hottest day of the year, and it is large. Does this imply that if irrigation were to stop, say due to drought, then the hottest days would be even hotter? Previous research has uh, indeed uh, shown that irrigation has had a substantial impact on the magnitude of warm temperatures in irrigation hotspots around the world especially in South Asia, including uh, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. What our results show, oh, um, our climate model uh, results show there, is that the expansion of irrigation in these regions well, has a cooling effect locally, which compensated for the rise in temperature owing to greenhouse gas emissions. So I should, I should say partially compensated for the rise in temperatures owing to greenhouse gas emissions. It means that both effects act together and somehow cancel out each other. Now, if, and this, but this is speculation, if irrigation were to cease in this region, potentially there could be an accelerated warming. But this, is, uh, this remains to be investigated using dedicated climate simulations for the future. Well, let's talk about the unfairness of climate change. According to the World Bank, about 42% of the world population is under the age of 25. That's about 3.5 billion people on the planet. The population under 25 rises above 60% in the Middle East and North Africa. Why should they suffer for the wealth and pollution from previous generations in countries far away? So our recent study clearly shows that while the exposure, the lifetime exposure to climate extremes rises in most places, maybe everywhere across the globe, we do find very strong spatial uh, disparities. For instance, people born in the Middle East and North Africa will face the strongest increase in lifetime exposure to climate extremes. People that are living in this region and that are today 25 years or younger, they will face a seven-fold increase in lifetime exposure to climate extremes relative to a person living in a world without climate change in that same region. Newborns in 2020 will face even a nine-fold increase in lifetime exposure to climate extremes relative to a person living in that region in absence of climate change. The second most hit region after the Middle East and North Africa is Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, if you group the countries not by geographic region, but by income category, we find that children and young generations in low-income countries will by far face the strongest increase in lifetime exposure to climate extremes. This is problematic because in the first place, these children contributed the least in these low-income countries, they contributed the least to the problem because they generated very limited, very few greenhouse gas emissions. Secondly, these children are the most vulnerable because they often live in fragile states which don't have climate change adaptation strategies deployed. They are often living in poor economic conditions with poorly isolated houses, lack of air conditioning, and so on. So these children are most vulnerable. 
And finally, we calculated that there's many children in that situation. If you consider children born in Europe and Central Asia, there are 64 million children born in that region between 2015 and 2020. These children, they will face a fourfold increase in extreme event exposure. However, in the same period, 205 million children were born in Sub-Saharan Africa, and they will face not a fourfold, but a sixfold increase in extreme event exposure. This means that there is a disproportionate burden of climate change on young generations living in developing countries. There is solid science warning parts of Earth will be too hot and humid to survive, and other places will be wiped out repeatedly, as Caribbean islands were by superstorms. If people cannot survive where they are, they will migrate. And given the multiplying pressures outlined in your new paper, what are your expectations about climate migration, and did you include that factor in your study? So our study is deliberately limited to exposure to climate extremes, exposure to these hazards. And this is because by doing so, we can quantify exactly the change in burden of generations across different countries in the world. If we want to look at the actual impacts which these extreme events generate on these people, we would also have to account for the vulnerability of these people. And while we have a lot of scientific information regarding vulnerability, this is still there are still some challenges to quantify this in a global framework such as ours. But we do hope to continue researching on the topic and to also expand, extend this approach of exposure to vulnerability and thereby quantify the full risk of current young generations in terms of future climate change. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest from VU Brussels, research professor Wim Thierry. We're talking about leaving our children with weather extremes you have never seen. So we do not have to look overseas for climate injustice. School kids already know, often better than their parents do, Wim, you have kids, including a toddler born near that 2020 line used in your disaster charts. Talk to us about intergenerational injustice. Yeah, for a very long time, the narrative about climate change has been a narrative of impacts occurring in distant regions. And the narrative has also also been one of tackling climate change for safeguarding the future of future generations, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren that are still to be born in the future. But what we are seeing with all those extreme events occurring all around us, heat waves, floods, droughts, in every country of the world, we are seeing that today climate change has arrived everywhere. And this is also what our study is showing. People that are alive today and that are born today will face unprecedented exposure to climate extremes. And this means that tackling climate change is not a matter of safeguarding future generations. It is the the case. But it's also the case of preserving and safeguarding the safety of current generations and especially current young generations. So there is this new, this shift and this clear message from our research and also many other recent studies that 
tackling climate change is a matter of both international and intergenerational justice. Studies emphasize the land area likely to experience extreme heat, but is it more important to know the human area? For example, are these increases happening over densely populated areas? Will the number of people exposed increase? Yes, so indeed many studies and also the data sets that we are using as input are considering the land area exposed to extreme heat waves, but also, for instance, to wildfires. Now, if you're interested in what this means for human beings, you have to overlay that with demographic data. And that's what we did in our study. And indeed, we are finding, by doing, the, by doing that comparison between climate and demography, we are finding that people are being hit by those extreme events. They are exposed to those extreme events. They are not happening, in, in, they are also happening in remote locations, but they are especially also happening in regions where many people are living. And also in regions where there is a rapid increase in population, which means that in those regions, for instance, in, in cities, in coastal regions, or in tropical areas where there is a particularly strong increase in heat waves. So this clearly highlights that climate change is affecting all of us all around the world. In the discussion part of the paper, your team of dozens of scientists finds that even these frightening findings might be too conservative. Extremes might increase even more. You say, quote, For example, we treated multiple extremes within a year as one, neglected compound events, and ignored changes in event duration and intensity, End quote. You also had to leave out slow developments like coastal flooding, and those are all huge. Do we still have a worse, worst-case scenario to come? So indeed, we think that our calculations are conservative and might be underestimating the actual increase in lifetime exposure to extremes. Uh, correctly note, we are considering multiple, well, we, because our analysis is on annual timescales, we do not account for the possibility that in the future there may be multiple extreme events occurring within a calendar year. Also, we are not accounting for the fact that heat waves are not only increasing in frequency, but they are also increasing in duration and in intensity. The same applies, and I would say, especially for tropical cyclones, which are known to change not so much in terms of frequency, but especially in terms of destructive power. So we are not accounting for that in our calculations. Finally, there is recent scientific evidence showing that there is a correlation between these different types of extreme events. Think about a heat wave and a wildfire. There is a, a causal link between both extreme events. And the same applies, for instance, to a drought and a crop failure. This means that if you have this one type of extreme event, it may also trigger another event, or both might be triggered by the same atmospheric circulation patterns. This means that these extreme events, they tend to occur at the same time, and this might amplify the impacts generated by these extreme events. We are not accounting for these phenomena in our study explicitly, and this means that actual impact might be higher than we anticipate from our calculations. How do you think student protests and science fit together when it comes to climate action? So our role as scientists is to provide objective assessments of 
the behavior of the physical system and its interplay with, with human activities. And that, that's really our role as scientists, to provide robust and reliable data. Now, of course, as scientists, the research that we conduct is not independent of society. It means that things we are seeing happening in society may inspire us to perform that independent objective and robust research. And in this case, we have been seeing in recent years young people organizing, taking the streets, organizing protest marches and school strikes, highlighting the fact that climate change will affect their lives as young people. And this also inspired us scientists to ask that question, yes, but what exactly will climate change mean for these young people? And that's the research question that we tackled in this research, which was by itself performed according to the highest scientific standards. Wim, I have to tell you, I interview scientists with some very bad news about the future, but this paper seems particularly terrible. It hit me because I worry about the future. We're leaving our grandson. How have people reacted to your new study? Yeah, so when you show these results to, to climate scientists, they, they all react saying that, yes, indeed, this is the results which we expect. We expect an increased exposure for new generations, we expect an increased exposure for higher warming levels. We also expect the increase in heat waves to be more, even more pronounced than the increase in these other categories. So scientifically, these results, they resonate with all the knowledge which we have already built up since several decades in, in the field of climate science. But then when you see the actual numbers as a person, and I can say even myself, as a person, and as a father, when you see these numbers, of course, it, it also hits you as a human being to see what climate change could actually mean for younger generations, but even, I would say, all generations that are alive today. So there is a clear call for action that is emerging also for this re from this research, and that there is a call for action and a message of hope also. And that message of hope, and I would like to emphasize this, is that limiting global warming to one and a half degree really allows us to avoid the worst consequences that are displayed in our calculations. We can avoid these worst increases in exposure by increasing climate emission and limiting global warming to one and a half degrees. Well, all animals want to protect their young, and uh, we humans must too. What are you working on next, Wim? The next step that we hope to tackle in our scientific research is to quantify how the vulnerability to these extreme events changes with age and changes with time. In what will this exposure to heat waves, what will it mean for people? What will it mean for their learning capabilities, for their health, for their labor productivity? And, and are there things we can do to reduce that vulnerability? So this is something that we are hoping to continue researching in the next months and years. From the Free University of Brussels, we've been speaking with research professor Wim Thierry. He also heads the BC Climate Group with 36 other scientists. Wim led the science paper Intergenerational Inequities in Exposure to Climate Extremes. Find links to follow up in my weekly show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. 
Wim, thank you for sharing your time and your vision with us. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. We're going into uncharted territories that are more analogous to some of the most disruptive events in Earth's history that cause massive warming and sometimes extinction events. The world of politics and high finance are full of strange agreements, as real as unicorns. Unicorns think they can survive extreme climate change. Let's not put our faith in them. That's what I'm hearing from Australian team of David Spratt and Ian Dunlop. David Spratt is Research Director for the Breakthrough National Center for Climate Restoration, and he is co-author of the book Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action. From Melbourne, David Spratt, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. It's great to be with you. Well, last year, Breakthrough released a punchy report called Climate Reality Check 2020. Will you update that for 2021? Well, I think we'll have to update it every year, Alex, but yes, we are at the moment. And, of course, one of the reasons is we're moving up towards the climate conference in Glasgow, and we've had the IPCC physical sciences report out for um, a little time now, and um, some things which we really had to look for the evidence for last year are now really in the IPCC report, and so things have changed. So we now know, for example that warming is now at 1.2. People were saying 1.1 last year, but the last five years have averaged 1.2. In fact, in 2020, it was 1.3. And the new IPCC report says that, really, we are going to be at 1.5, the lower end of the Paris Agreement, by 2030, regardless of the emissions path over the next 10 years. So we're going to uh, get to 1.5, whether we reduce our emissions or not, because most of that warming is, is from things we've done in the past. So um, we speculated that on last year. Uh, now it's it's really affirmed. Um, the second piece of evidence, of course, is that the rate of warming is, is increasing, uh, and there's now various lines of evidence that's saying that warming over the next three or four decades could be perhaps double what it's been over the last few decades. So that's that's a new climate reality check that we're dealing with. Every single point in your reality check burns through some of the nice talk, and I just want to pick a couple. First, Dr. James Hansen warns the critical measurement is the difference between the amount of energy entering the Earth's atmosphere and what gets back out into space. And citing a new NASA paper released in June, you say, quote, the Earth is trapping nearly twice as much heat as it did in 2005. Tell us about that. Why does Earth energy imbalance matter so much? Earth energy imbalance is really a measure at the top of the atmosphere between the amount of energy coming in and the amount of energy going out. And when more is coming in than is going out, then the Earth will continue to warm. And the latest measurement shows that's increasing. I mean, that's not surprising because we are still putting more and more fossil fuel uh, up there every year, so that will increase. And we also have some feedbacks in the system which are contributing to that as well. One which has just recently come out in a paper in the last few days suggests that the reflectivity, uh, particularly of the Earth's oceans, is decreasing. And, of course, 
the more reflective the Earth's surface is, then the more energy will bounce back into in, into space. Uh, obviously, a planet covered by white uh, white ice would be a lot cooler than a planet covered by deep blue seas. But it seems to be some changes in cloud cover over the oceans that. Uh, more energy is being absorbed than expected, and I think that could be equivalent to about another one-third of a degree of warming. But the Earth energy imbalance is the difference between incoming and outgoing radiation, and at the moment that appears to be around 0.7 to 0.8 of one degree, and we have 1.2 degrees of actual warming already. So when you add in that energy imbalance, that's saying that basically we've got two degrees in the system, uh, which is not surprising because we've known that for quite a long time. Your breakthrough reality check is mercifully short, it's very direct, it's packed, and in point number 13, you remind us of the urgency factor. Please explain, quote, if the reaction time is longer than the intervention time left, we have lost control. Well, this was a paper that was put out uh, by John Sheldon, who was the former director of the Potsdam Institute and advisor to Chancellor Merkel and, and then to Pope Francis a couple of years ago with some of his colleagues, which talked about climate as an existential risk. And they said normal normal risk management is, you know, the probability of something happening multiplied by the damages if it, if it did happen. But then they said there's another factor as well, and that is the time you've got left available. And perhaps the best metaphor for that is the Titanic. And so they, they talk about two times you need to think about. One is the time you need to solve a problem, and the other is the time you've actually got left to solve the problem. So the, what they call the reaction time is how long will it take to solve a problem. So when the watch on the Titanic saw the, uh, the iceberg, they realised they needed longer than 10 minutes to be able to steer the ship away from the iceberg. But in fact, at the end of the intervention time, the time they had before they hit the iceberg was, was, was less than 10 minutes. And that's why they crashed, because they didn't have time to steer the ship away from the iceberg or, or the bus from going off the cliff. And what they, what Sean Hoover and so on have said is, we need to think about that in climate change too. How long have we got to get to zero versus how much time we've actually got? You know, this is a general proposition we need to get to net zero by 2050. But in fact, I mean, the problems are going to manifest in, in the next 10 or 15 years. And that's the issue, that the time that we think we've got available is less than it actually is. But the big fossil countries like Saudi Arabia and companies like Shell, BP and Exxon, they support net zero 2050, even though that supposedly limits their products. Why do they go along with this green promise to save the planet and who is going along with them? This is the big greenwash. This is the big con leading up to the uh, 26th Conference of the Parties under the UNFCCC in Glasgow in the first two weeks of November. And we've seen around the world in the last couple of years a really big, a big push of what's called Net Zero 2050. The International Energy Agency put out a, a report about it and how we might get there. And more recently, an even more influential body called the Network for Greening the Financial System. And that be put off by the word greening. It's actually the world's central banks and financial regulators for the global economy have put out a series of scenarios which are now becoming very influential in talking about net zero 2050. And so we're finding around the world that the big fossil fuel producers are, are signing up the, the big fossil fuel mining export companies in, in Australia. So it, it looks like you know, the new best thing. The problem is that hidden in the detail is a catastrophe. 
Yes, I mean, I was amazed to learn from you that the network for the greening of the financial system asks the banking sector to assess how they can prepare financially for a world four degrees C hotter than pre-industrial times. Four degrees warming may very well happen. So how will the banking system do, David? <laughs> this is the problem. I mean, we have um, the financial regulators in Australia called the Australian Provincial the Regulation Authority, which has asked companies, large companies in Australia, to assess the climate risk associated with two and four degrees of warming. And what we know from scientists like John Shovelheber and, and, and Kevin Anderson and many others that four degrees is basically the end of human civilization as we know it. I mean, large parts of the world would simply be unlivable. I mean, Sean Hoover a decade ago said if you get to four degrees, you might have one of the people, one billion people left on the planet. So there's obviously a disconnect when financial regulators are putting out risk scenarios which are completely incompatible with, with the maintenance of, of the companies that they're trying to regulate. As I said, I mean, if you get to four degrees, there wouldn't be a financial system because the customers would be dead on the streets before they got to the, to the door of the bank. And that's a problem. They're not understanding the risks that they really exist, and they're really underestimating the risks. If we look at the reports from the networks that are the financial system, for example, they say on a high-emission scenario, this is you know, a three- to four-degree scenario, at the end of this century, the damages or impact on the economy might be 13%. I mean, this is ludicrous. I mean, the economy may not exist at Fort Erie's meaning that we would understand it now. So there's, you know, there's a massive illusions in the work that they're doing. They assume in their models that by 2050, the population will grow by 20% and demand with increasing affluence for food, food demand will be 50% higher than it is in 2030. And yet the amount of land available for food will have decreased because they're using it for bioenergy capture and storage uh, in, in their models. So there's a real disconnect. And, and to be honest, I think these central bank scenarios are, are just fantasy. And the problem with scenarios, and they do reflect the model's views of the society, you can make a scenario up to be anything you want it to be. Now, it can be a fairy tale, and you say, this is the scenario. Our analysis is that the central bank scenarios, which are now the key to net zero at 2050 in Glasgow, are simply not credible. David, what can the global financial crisis of 2007 and eight tell us about systems' failure to understand extreme climate risks? Yeah, I mean, this is the irony, isn't it, that we've had a series of, of events around the world in which uh, systems theorists and risk, uh, risk analysts have understood that events have happened that they didn't see coming. I mean, one of the obvious ones, and there was a very large inquiry in the United States after 9-11, and they said, why didn't we see this coming? And they said there was a generalised failure of intelligence, of analysis. Uh, we were thinking in boxes. Uh, we were siloed. I mean, they don't part of the intelligence industry wasn't... Uh, sector wasn't talking to others, we had our methods wrong. The same thing happened with the global financial crisis, that they acknowledged afterwards that they didn't understand what the financial system was doing. They didn't understand selling mortgages on the Mississippi uh, to people who didn't have the capacity to repay them would cause a crisis. And so we had this repeated failure to see the risks, and that's what's happening again now, that the, that the central bank strategies and defining scenarios in that 2050 are not rooted in, in the real world. 
by it, so that they're, they're underestimating the damages. And for example, if you look at the scenarios that the net worth agreement of the financial system put out, even though they're called net zero by 2050, some of them have 50% of primary energy still coming from fossil fuels in 2050, offset with carbon capture and storage and so on. So in many ways, these scenarios are an excuse to keep the fossil fuel industry alive. Well, no wonder they get support from the financial industry, yeah, and, and from the fossil fuel industry. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock, broadcasting reality where we can find it. I'm Alex Smith, and returning from the Breakthrough National Center for Climate Restoration is our guest, David Spratt. David is co-author of Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action. So as you brought up, David, when the Conference of the Parties meet for the 26th time in Scotland this November, they and the United Nations are willing to accept solutions with incredible risks. It is hair-raising when you read the fine print. What risks are world leaders apparently ready to sign us up for? No, I think the big issue is delaying action, a timetable to, to 2050, rather than all the emphasis being on the next few years and the next 10 years. If you ask somebody to promise to, to give up the grog in 30 years' time, they'll sign up straight away because they don't have to do anything for 25 years. And that's the problem we've got with this, that long-term targets are an excuse for procrastination when short-term ambition. And this was dramatically brought out by a report which came out just recently from... Chatham House, which is the, the premier uh, international affairs um, and legal organisation in, in the UK, funded by the Foreign Office, and that brought out the Chatham House Climate Range Risk Assessment 2021. Um, people will find it very easily uh, with Dr Google. And they say the world is dangerously off track to meet the climate uh, agreements from Paris, that the risks are compounding, and without what they call immediate action, the impacts will be devastating. And they say... They give one really clear example, which I, I, I think is reached from front and centre in Glasgow, and they say if there aren't really dramatic actions between now and 2030, then a whole lot of things are going to be locked in. And we know that. I mean, certainly getting past two degrees will be locked in. And they say if there aren't big reduction cuts before 2030, here's what will happen with food. And they say the global demand for food will be 50% more between 2040 and 2050 compared to now, but crop yields could decline by 30% in the absence of dramatic emissions reductions. 50% increase in demand, 30% decline in yield. Now, you put those two things together and you've got a global food crisis of unimaginable proportions. And they're saying that cropland that is severely affected by drought will rise to one-third of all cropland uh, per year. And then they go and look at some specific crops, um, for example, maize, where four countries, uh, the US, China, Brazil and Argentina, um, are responsible for more than 80% of global maize production. They say the probability of a greater than 10% yield loss uh, goes up to, to basically more than 50%. So you're talking about systemic drought and declines in yields and crop losses will create a permanent food crisis in two decades' time. And that's, that's why 2050 is not the story to be talking about. Yes, I totally get that. But I also think that when they do come up with a plan, they say, well, this has got a 60% chance of succeeding. 
and you think to yourself, well, would I get on an airplane if there was a 60% chance it would land safely at the other end? And I think my answer would be no. This is, this is the problem with all risk analysis that we've been pointing to since our report called What Lies Beneath on IPCC Reticence and Poor Risk Management. In our personal lives, we would not take a 1% risk. If, if somebody said, you get on, on, the pl- on this plane and there's a 1% chance of crashing, you'd say no thanks. If people said, um, you can get in this lift, but there's a 10% chance that it will get jammed and we'll never get you out, you'd say no thanks. But we are now seeing with these uh, scenarios for, for 2050, with these scenarios for network for doing the financial system, the so-called carbon budgets, which in reality don't exist uh, for two degrees, where they're saying, well, there's a 50 to 66% chance, a uh, one in two or two in three chance of actually staying under this number we need to stay under. And, and what we're saying is you should not project onto the future of the Earth and the future of its people risks that you would not take in your own life. That's the problem. Just recently, the United Nations took off the rose-colored glasses, sort of. They admit our present course will heat the world 2.7 degrees C by the end of the century, way beyond the supposed safe levels in the Paris Accord. But David, when do you think this world will get to 3 degrees C hotter? Well, look, Alex, it obviously depends on, on what, what we do. We know from the recent IPCC report, it says that we're going to get to 1.5 around 2030, regardless of the emissions part. Even if we cut emissions drastically, we also cut uh, the, the, the byproduct of creating aerosols quickly, so the results are the same. Uh, we, in terms of the temperature increases, are from what's called the high emissions part, RCP 8.5. Uh, partly because of feedbacks in the system. If we do not get really dramatic, really dramatic emissions cuts and stay on a medium to high emissions path, the IPCC says that we're going to get to two degrees around 2043, certainly in the mid-2040s. So we're probably less than 25 years away from two degrees on the present political path. And we can see at that time that you know, we might be adding up to a, a quarter of a third degree every decade, depending on whether the permafrost remains stable and so on. I, mean, I would imagine if we continue on the present path, between 2060 and 70, we'll be at three degrees and four degrees by the end of the century. On the other hand, if we were to say, OK, you know, we really need to mobilise like this is a war and try and get to zero emissions in 10, and as Sir David King and his Centre for Climate uh, Repair at Cambridge is now saying very loudly, and also through their Climate Crisis Advisory Group, that emissions reduction is one part of the answer, but drawing down carbon dioxide from the air really quickly is the second part, and looking at whether there's some vital ecosystems that we need to cool to prevent these uh, tipping points taking off, like the Arctic is a third, then we'd have a very different outcome. Okay, so we're sliding into the conversation I have avoided for years, geoengineering. And it's true that humans seem to specialize in technology that damages nature, whether we intend it or not. And we're kind of blind to the side effects and actual impacts. And so environmentalists and many scientists have opposed geoengineering for those reasons. But David Spratt, is it really time for these desperate measures? Look, I think it is. I mean, if geoengineering is human intervention to change the climate, we've been consciously geoengineering the planet for, for, for 100 years because we've known for 100 years what the greenhouse effect is. So I think we're now in the situation of least worst scenarios. The problem is this, Alex. 
that we're going to be at 1.5 in 10 years. We have already passed tipping points for dramatic system change in the Arctic with sea ice, for coral reefs and researchers say we've passed tipping points in the West Antarctic. The data is now pretty clear that in the next 10 years we're going to pass the tipping points for the Amazon uh, rainforest. I mean, there's now clear evidence that eastern Amazonia has become a net emitter of carbon. Rather than one of the great stores of carbon, it's, it's now producing carbon. Uh, there's increasing concern that Greenland has passed its tipping points. It's now clear that the, that the emissions of uh, greenhouse gases from the permafrost and from boreal forests are non-trivial. These dominoes are starting to fall over each other really quickly, just at 1.2 degrees. When we get to 2 degrees, somewhere between 2040 and 2050, the show might be all over in terms of those tipping points because once those dominoes fall, you cannot stand them up again quickly. And we have to prevent us getting anywhere near two degrees or more. And carbon drawdown will work in the long term, but it is a, a necessary but slow process. And some form of, some form of, of temporary cooling to, to give us a breathing space uh, might, in, in the phrase I use, be the least worst option. Not desirable, but if it turns out it can be done effectively and it's a least worst option than letting the climate system running out of control we at least need to start having a serious conversation about that. This September, the Swiss company Climeworks opened a new industrial plant in Iceland. It doesn't make anything. It takes carbon dioxide out of the air. What do you think about that? Look, if you look at it, it's a lot of money for a small amount of carbon removal. I mean, I mean, it's a bit like the probably the uh, solar panel problem. I mean, 30 years ago, solar panels were... Inordinately expensive, and they're a hundred times more expensive than they now. And he said 40 years ago, look, solar panels will be so cheap that coal-fired power stations will have to close because they won't compete. People would have laughed at you. I mean, the machine that you're talking about is what's called direct air capture, a machine that literally separates the CO2 out from, from general air, and then obviously there's a path to, to store it underground in, in disused uh, oil or gas wells and so on. It's very expensive at the moment, but it's the sort of research that needs to be done in order to get down the cost curve as we can do solar panels. But, you know, there are, there are other forms of carbon storage which are available to us. The first is, is to stop what I call negative drawdown. I mean, we are degrading boreal forests, uh, uh, rainforests, uh, ocean carbon storage. We have to stop the degradation of our carbon stores so that they can have the whole carbon again rather than lose it and then repair them. And the cheapest, most effective, large-scale form of carbon drawdown is to restore our degraded forests and wetlands. So I think we can do those sorts of things. We know that there are really credible, cost-effective means with sustainable agriculture to store more carbon in soils. All these things are proven, known technologies, cost-effective. We do all of them and then see, in parallel, whether there's research that can produce the sort of machines that there that is really a test run uh, that you're talking about, where we could let these can be made scalable as well. So doing the things with the natural based solutions that we know are working now and see what else we can add into the mix to to add to the amount of cool down. Well, you mentioned the University of Cambridge Centre for Climate Repair, founded by Sir David King, and they just held a conference about capturing methane back from the atmosphere. So it's not just carbon dioxide, sort of a all-hands-on-deck to remove any of the extra blanket of greenhouse gases. Do you think there's a future for, for methane removal? 
when when we need to get to a research outcome in a hurry, you have to do parallel research. You don't test one one idea and see if it works, and if that idea doesn't work, then move on to the next one. You you test all the things that might work in parallel. It costs a lot more than the research budget. That's a way of getting there closer. So I think absolutely, and that's one of the things that, that, that the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge is doing, is saying, let's assess all the methods that can help and put them all on the table. So warming may feed back and carry us into a greenhouse world within a lifetime, and nobody knows what that sentence means. We have no experience of that. It's not just blind bankers and short-term power politicians. We just don't know what it means. And still, I wonder if it's a fatal flaw that I stupidly believe that some humans will battle through it all and still experience enough happiness to be grateful to be alive. <laughs> That's an interesting question, Alex. Uh, I mean, obviously the capacity of people to adapt and survive to climate change is really dependent on where in the world they are and their income. The richer you are, the more resources you have to adapt. If you own a condominium on, a, on, a, on the California coast that's falling into the ocean, you probably don't have money to build another one somewhere else. If you're a lifetime on the, on the, on the Mekong Delta, which is being dominated, uh, you don't. So, yes, some people have a better capacity to survive than others, but I think it's an illusion to think that the world systems will survive a, a mass disruption of that scale. I mean, we've seen how fragile and interconnected the world is at the moment. We've seen, for example, what, what the COVID pandemic has done, where supply chains are breaking down. The price of shipping containers around the world has tripled because the transport system is not working. We've seen what Brexit has done in, 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 in Britain, where the supermarket shelves are empty, are, are empty, people are queuing up for six hours to get petrol at the petrol station. The minor disruptions in an interconnected world can have really large consequences. And that will be written at a scale 10,000 times greater than climate disruption. So, yes, while um, some people might survive in a much hotter planet, there will not be the global human and economic systems to support them that we assume there will be. The Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration watches over a lot of pots on a hot stove. What do you have coming out, and is there more you'd like to do? We're updating uh, our climate reality check at the moment. We've also been doing some work in the climate and security space, which I think is really important because traditionally people talked about national security impacts of climate change in, in terms of war and conflict, and we've certainly seen that in, in Syria, uh, in the Sahel, even in Afghanistan. There's certainly a climate fingerprint on, on what's been happening there. Uh, but there's new conversation understanding security more in terms of human security. That is, that what people concern, are concerned about is their safety, their well-being, uh, the capacity to continue in their work. Uh, and this really, this concept of, of human security really comes back to food security. Uh, and as we were just talking about with the Chatham House report, uh, they're growing food and water insecurity in the world. So I think that really an understanding of where hotter climates, desertification of, of the dry subtropics, increasing drought and uncertainty, the effect that will have on our food and water uh, systems and then on human security and, and the capacity to, to live in, in peaceful states and, and peaceful relations between states is a big issue. I mean, as you know from Mesos hierarchy of needs, uh, food, water and shelter, the first three things that humans need, and I think conversations about how climate change will affect 
those things is maybe a way to, to engage with people who may, who may not care about the laws of physics and chemistry, but um, are certainly concerned about their, their own human security for them, their family, their friends, their children, the people they care about. So I'm really interested in delving deeper into this the, the base story of climate change, which is about food and water on a hotter planet. I'll put links to David's interesting blog at climatecodered.org and the Breakthrough National Repair Center in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. From Melbourne, Australia, we've been speaking with author, activist, and climate truth-teller David Spratt. Thank you, David. I always enjoy talking with you. It's great to do so, Alex. Thank you so much. For Radio Ecoshock, I'm Alex Smith. These new realities are not easy. I appreciate your support and being ready to listen to the best expertise explained directly by the authors. Not everyone has the patience or the courage to build this big picture. Please act as a translator for it, a communicator of this vital information to all your contacts. I know that takes courage, but this is the time. Watch for climate action, participate, become an activist for life, for the kids, for all the innocent species that pulsing life of other earthlings. We need to save it all. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for this opportunity. Please join us again next week on Radio Eco Shock. <music>